family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Runther, your host, and we do look forward to some invigorating, surprising, innovative conversational improv. Helping us today will be not one but two co-hosts. She is our Woodstock Roundtable poet laureate, Victoria Sullivan. He is an on-air weekend warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. Among the topics we'll be improvising on, the benefits of caffeine, the benefits of psychedelics, the old brain or the new brain. How do they all connect? Our guest in the 8 to 8.30 half hour will be Marty Klein. He is a writer, an activist, and producer of a new documentary, Why Can't We Serve?, about veterans with disabilities. Um, he has a very good story to tell, and he tells it well in the documentary. We will have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, an existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin, and we have yet another reason to play the Beach Boys. Hang out with us here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. <laughs> We're going to do it again. Two hours here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Doug. Good Let's morning, start Victoria. our engines. Yes. Yeah. It really feels like summer. Really? Yeah. It doesn't to why. me. Just, um, just, I don't know why I woke up today. Not be, it's not going to be that hot today. It just no. feels... 80-ish. It was 54 summer. on the porch. Yes. Uh, <laughs> ah. But it was In the okay. early dawn. I, I didn't mind, but I mean, it didn't feel like summer. It felt like some strange Japanese film. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know there, by the way, are there any normal Japanese films? <laughs> I wouldn't see them if there were. I only I like the strangers. They seem to have a lot of fog in some of them, and that's what happens in Socrates at, at that hour of the day. There's a lot of fog. My, of course, when I think of Japanese films, I go back to my childhood and the seminal Japanese science fiction picture godzilla ah mm. yes well no i think of the uh, samurai warriors sort of fighting their way through the fog in those uh, kurosawa films <laughs> i've always empathized with the japanese they have it just geographically tough they're a relatively small island uh surrounded by other countries and uh, obviously a very intelligent culture yes um but 
always I always found it a very dark culture for some reason. Well, they're fierce. That's how I see them. It's very fierce. They're also these days fashionable, so it's an interesting combination. Uh, I saw recently on Netflix. I saw an interesting Japanese film that was all set in a European country, but all Japanese actors, hmm. and they just transplanted Japanese actors into this European uh, country, and and the costumes were all European. And the only thing was the the actors were all Japanese. It was kind of weird. <laughs> well, they have an interesting ability to just, you know, shapeshift and things. Yeah. They're very into jazz. They're keeping the jazz industry alive in New York. Oh, Japanese absolutely. tourists. Hmm. And you know Otherwise, I, the jazz clubs couldn't go. 50% of the audience wow. for jazz in New York is Japanese. It's both jazz and, and Europeans. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah, the, I learned that from um, uh, a... Radio Woodstock WDST alumnus Les Gerber, oh, who, yeah. who was uh, used to <coughs> program a lot of classical music uh-huh. here on the station for years, and then um, he had a bi- his business was selling used records. You say, well, what kind of business is that? His business was about eighty percent with the Japanese, yeah, because. And while they would buy used classical, he realized what they really wanted was jazz. Mm-hmm. And so he made a very nice living wow. selling used jazz records to the Japanese. But they had to be very they, pristine. You couldn't sell oh, yeah. a, a record with any scratches right. on it. Right. But they no, they do. American. It's so interesting because jazz is one of the few Native American art forms. But Native American is the wrong phrase. It's not even. Right. The few, in, uh, the few art forms that actually came from... Right, the that United we created. States, that we created. Most of what we did was, was borrowed. And um, jazz is one of the few. Rock and roll is one. But jazz preceded that. I think the improvisatory character of jazz fascinated the Japanese. And for quite a while, it wasn't in their storehouse to be improvisatory like mm. that. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very But the younger culture. ones now are moving in and, and playing it, and, and playing it not just in a... Uh, technically adept way, but in a feeling way. Mm. But that, that's a new movement in their mu- music. So uh, let's go to my, I have a couple articles here I found interesting. One for Prevention Magazine. I've been around a long time. Um, and I, but for the most part, based on my research, they're pretty legit. Um, you know, when you read an article about health, or for, you, you, the first thing it's important to know is who's paying, who's paying. Mm-hmm. Because there have been many studies done, and by the way, let's not get haughty about this because we're all susceptible to what I'm going to say, every one of us. It's a human trait that even somebody with good values who wants to do the right thing and be honest and report properly, we are unconsciously motivated and influenced by who's paying us. It's just the sure. way it is. And they've done these studies where they had scientists um, – they, they set it up so sci- some scientists were told to research a project and they were paid by a corporation, others by a nonprofit. And the results of those that were paid by the corporation came out much more favorable towards the corporation. Sure. It's just the way it works. Yeah. Not just because people are greedy or trying to manipulate things. And I think also that corporations must seek out people who've already said things in a positive direction about what they're doing. So those people mm-hmm. might. But go on about this article, because I have some issues with it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> what do you want to fight about first? Okay. <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be the roundtable. <laughs> uh, well, here we go. Uh, the, the article's title is Six Proven Health Benefits of Coffee. And 
I was intrigued by that because of my own history with, with coffee, which is I didn't really care about mu much growing up one way or the other. In college, we drank coffee just so we could stay up and, you know, cram. But then I, then I suddenly got into it. I, got, like I realized, like, when you went out, the difference between a good cup of coffee and a mediocre cup of coffee was, uh, to me, tremendous difference. And, um, and then when I first moved to Woodstock, came up here to help launch this, part of the team that helped launch this radio station, of course, when you first one thing I liked about Woodstock, and it's both a plus and a minus, is its holistic uh, resources. <laughs> and so I met a couple people who became my health practitioners. One was a doctor, one was a chiropractor who was very into nutrition. And both of them were virulently against caffeine hmm. for anybody, virulently uh, against dairy virulently against wheat those three because now their reasoning had logic even though i now realize they were way over <laughs> <laughs> their logic was that that uh, caffeine dairy and wheat are three of the main allergens that mm. cause serious allergies in in people mm-hmm and so they took that and ran with it to say, well, then it's bad for everybody at any dose, which ain't true. Um, and so I got kind of scared into, uh, uh, you know, whoa, I, keep that away from me, you know. And then all of a sudden I started realizing as I experimented, the only way you know is taking it because we're all, bi we're all biochemically different. And there, are, there is a small percentage of the population who's highly allergic to dairy, highly allergic yeah. to wheat, highly allergic to glutens. They should stay away from it. Most of us, the issue isn't, most of us, the issue isn't the dairy, the caffeine, or the wheat, or the gluten. It's two things. The quality. Uh -huh. Often. And the amount. In America, our culture is more is better. Right. If you like something, have more of it. And at a certain point, the body will rebel. I'm moderately intolerant to milk, so I don't drink it. But I eat cheese and I eat yogurt, and it's fine. But the, but the milk, I just it didn't make me feel well, so I stopped drinking And that's it. how you do it. You, yeah. you try it and see how you feel. And you get off it and see if you feel better. Right. It's, it's not complicated, except <laughs> we make it complicated. I, by the way, am extremely fond of coffee and have always been fond of coffee. And so I've gone through all the stages of when they said it was bad for you. And I was like, well, but I still have to drink it. And then when they started saying, oh, you know, guess what? We found these good things about it. I thought, well, great. I must have known that anyway. It, it's more the tone of the article that bothered me than actually the points that it makes. Well, let's get into the article <laughs> and then we can have it. I don't like coffee, by the way. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I actually adore coffee to the degree that when I went through a very bad stage in my life when my husband was very ill and you know later died every day i would thank the universe for coffee i would say what am i grateful for today and i was having a hard wow. time being grateful and then i'd say i had a great cup of coffee and that was a time in new york when a lot of coffee places were opening it was before the total starbucks domination and i used to put my little backpack on and walk around the city and find the new coffee places and try out the coffee and that was the la that and um 
films by Sanjit Ray. Those were the only <laughs> things that sustained me in that period. I never had the patience for anything that you, that they told me you had to grow on. It, it'll grow on you. You'll learn, I like you'll it right learn away. to like it. Well, that's a bad phrase. I you'll think, learn to like it. I, I think I, I, I liked it at, at 16, and I've never stopped. And I love it. And I've <laughs> yeah. gonna, And once I got off the emotional thing, psychological thing of, oh, two people I respected 30 years ago told me he, he, it's bad for you. Um, so I went to tea. And I enjoyed tea. Ah. And tea's a wonderful thing. I mean, listen, tea has wonderful things. But then all of a sudden, I grew out of tea. I just didn't enjoy it anymore. I said, well, let me try coffee. And I loved it. But like you, very different reason, and I've said it on the air, one of the things that motivates me to be happy or to get out of bed with a positive attitude is that I am going to grind coffee beans, get that amazing hit, that amazing aroma that mm. goes right to the parts of the brain that just love get you the, stimulated. The aroma. I love the aroma. And then have it while I turn my computer on to you know, read the, catch up on news or whatever I'm doing. And so, like you, I, it's a big part of my day. Uh, the beginning is that is making and, and enjoying that. And how much of, of it is caffeine? Subconsciously, perhaps. Some of both. Well, we don't know where the dividing line is. Certainly, caffeine is part of it, but it's not all of it. But it because gives you that boost. But it's a ca- stimulant. When I was drinking tea, I didn't like mild teas. I hated the caffeine-free teas. So I would mm. go for the big, you know, English breakfast. Right. Uh, I was going to say Marvin Gardens. That's a monopoly for you. Uh, English <laughs> breakfast, Marvin. No, English Tetley's. breakfast. What's the other? What's the other? The, the other great one with the uh, Earl Grey. Bergamot. Earl Grey. I can't mm. stand Earl I, Grey. I would like those. <laughs> and those and tea has a. Those teas have a lot of caffeine. Yes, in they them. do. So I'm not saying caffeine isn't part of it. Of course yeah. it is. And we're going to talk about how we have some pretty hard scientific evidence that the caffeine actually for most of us is a benefit. Huh. Okay. Um, but it's also the taste, the aroma, and the alchemy of making it. Although I will say sometimes it's just fun to go out and have a, a cup of let someone else make mm. it. You know. well, let's talk about, uh, this is from Prevention Magazine, uh, six proven, proven <laughs> health benefits of coffee. Okay. Over the past few decades, coffee's reputation has flip-flopped faster than a politician's. So yeah. That's a good opening line. Uh-huh. In 1991, the World Health Organization classified the beverage as a possible carcinogen. That's not good. No. Then in 2016, the organization found there was no conclusive evidence for a carcinogenic effect for drinking (laughs) coffee. And in between, most of the news was largely positive. Then, and this, I I didn't really pick up on this story, but it was, it's a big story, and it's just a few months ago. A Los Angeles judge ruled that coffee companies must put cancer warning labels on coffee products sold in California. Why? Because when roasted, coffee produces a chemical called acrylamide, which is classified as a carcinogen in California. Now. In Oregon, it's okay. In Oregon, it's okay. In New Jersey, it's okay. In New York, it's okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But in California... Now, well, they're cleaner out there, so they can feel these carcinogens more intensely. It turns out that this judge was off base. There are more than 1,000 compounds in coffee. Who knew? Ah. There are over 1,000 compounds in coffee, many of which are 
likely harbor, likely harbor anti-inflammatory and anti-cancer compounds, including a recent BMJ research review. What does BMJ stand for, I wonder? British Medical Journal. Who? British. B- British, British Medical, Medical Journal. Journal. I think you're probably right. Very good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> we'll trust it. <laughs> right. If not, good guess. <laughs> we'll make up another okay. one. <laughs> the coffee bean itself has antioxidants in it, which help prevent free radical damage that could potentially lead to cancer says the Director of Nutrition Research yeah. at Johns Hopkins. Great. Now I'm going to have to drink it. <laughs> you can take it intravenously. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Just get a Shoot hyper, up. Get a hyperdemic noodle. Sniff nood- it. Get a hyperdemic noodle. Hyperdemic noodle? Hyperdermic noodle. Did you give me a cup of yes, coffee? Yes, right. Could you please give us all some? I think we all need coffee. According to the report, coffee consumption is associated with a lower risk of melanoma and leukemia, as well as prostate and endometrial cancers. What's more, a 2017 University of Southern California study found that coffee drinkers were 26% less likely to to develop colorectal cancer than non-coffee drinkers. And those who drank more than 2.5 servings a day were 54% less likely to get cancer. Now here's where you gotta love our culture. As soon as most people read this, you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna start drinking. Well, if 2.5 helps lower cancer, if I drink 10 cups a day, (laughs) I even have less of a chance of getting cancer. Wrong. Okay, at some point, your body's gonna rebel against all the caffeine, right? Okay, but, so we have all this competing evidence, but the predominant evidence is, as we'll see, that coffee is a positive for most of us. Okay, diabetes is on the upswing in the United States. About a million and a half people are diagnosed each year, according to the American Diabetes Association. Um, Here's a great phrase. By the way, this will make you sleep well at night. (laughs) (laughs) According to the American Diabetes Association, approximately 7.2 million people have the disease but don't know it yet. Hey. Check, please. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, according to the analysis, which was published in the journal Diabetes Care, the more coffee people drink, the less likely they are to develop type 2 diabetes. Parentheses, it is possible to overdo it, though. To keep insomnia, tummy troubles, and migraines at bay, health experts recommend drinking no more than four 8-ounce coffees daily. So the point is, yeah, let's assume that if you, the more coffee you drink, the less chance you're going to get of getting cancer. But the greater chance that you're never going to have a good night's sleep the rest of your life, you're, you're going to get ulcers, yeah. and you're going to be miserable. But you won't get cancer. Yeah. Moderation is what we say. Oh, stop being rational. I know. Um, let's see. Coffee contains chromium, a mineral that helps the body utilize insulin. Okay. Coffee could decrease your risk of Alzheimer's. Over the past decade, studies have found a link between coffee consumption and a lower risk of dementia. It is thought that the drink's high caffeine content might be responsible for the brain-boosting benefits. One study of subjects showed signs of memory problems. Uh, let's see, over a two- to four-year pe- four period, people with lower blood levels of caffeine were more likely to develop dementia than those with higher levels. Now, by the way, I want to add a little caveat here. If you're putting four teaspoons of sugar into every cup of coffee and you're drinking a lot of coffee. Probably not good. You may not get cancer. (laughs) 
But you'll get, get the diabetes, diabetes. anyway. You'll <laughs> you beat the, the statistics. Yeah. You'll beat the statistics by being I, one of those I mean, who gets where, it anyway. That's where a little common sense, you know. But my problem is, and perhaps because my son is a scientist and actually a medical researcher and a brain researcher, is that it's not anecdotal in this. They're citing studies, but we have no sense of the size of the study. Of Is it a study that the drug administration would, you know, pass for medical reasons, how many people are in it. Was it financed by the coffee uh, lovers and, of, a, of America? And when they say things like, you know, it'll make your tummy feel better, I really feel like I'm dealing with well, something no, no, that's no, no, aimed no, no, no. at a... No, 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 that's not what they say. Well, they say fewer tummy problems, right? They I do use they the word no, tummy. But I thought they did. I, I thought, <laughs> I read it that the tummy troubles were if you overdo it. That's what it sounded like But But too. just the use of the word tummy... Hold I it. Mean, that was a parenthesis. <laughs> That's the journalist speaking, not the study. I know, but it's like the journalist has like a brain that doesn't excite me. And then at the hey. end, my favorite is that hey. um, most important, the research shows that people who drink coffee may be less likely to die from all causes. But we're all going to die. What is this? We're going to be less likely to die from all causes. Oh, you didn't. No, no, no. You (laughs) you didn't read the study that showed if you drink uh, 20 or more cups of coffee a day, you will never die. (laughs) (laughs) You won't have time to stop. It was a a double blind study. By the end of this article, it almost suggests that if you're just drinking quite a bit of coffee, as I do, you're not going to get any of this stuff. And you're actually not likely to die. You're you're 54% less likely to die. This is why than all these people who are drinking tea and diet coke and water and lemonade. I'm and so beer. glad you're a poet and not a journalist <laughs> because your 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 reaction which is wonderful by the way and great for radio um, has nothing to do with the article. First of all, <clears throat> Tommy was written by the journalist. Right. As a kind of joke, okay? Uh, so you didn't like the joke. No. That's okay. But that that doesn't mean the research in the article isn't legit. And number two, nowhere in this article is there any implication that if you drink coffee, you're not going to die. What does that sentence mean? Most important, research shows that people who drink coffee may be less likely to die from all causes. Well, from the causes they're talking about in this in this it article, sounds to me like the, they're less likely to die. No, <laughs> I don't think so. The ger- prevention is a little better than that. This isn't Michigan <laughs> Magazine here. This is Prevention Magazine. This isn't this isn't uh, Journal uh, of the Incredibly Insane. This is Prevention <laughs> Magazine. I know, but I think it's it doesn't stop you, you from wearing you out. I, I think it's Prevention Light. I think it's like Psychology Today. I think that if you really got all the m- Medical data behind this, it would be less impressive than grabbing a study here and a study there. Without qu- every piece has its prejudice and its orientation. No, I'm not debating that. And uh, I appreciate that you're you're a very good <laughs> critic of writing and you don't like the person's writing. But the fact is, I'm not interested in whether this person writes well. I'm interested in the information. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It depends. Look, the judge in Los Angeles decided to look at a few studies which showed that the Rose, way they, they roast, when you time. roast coffee, you might create this little <laughs> carcinogen. Right. And he chose to say, okay, now you got to put a label that this may cause cancer. I That's mean, what he chose to right. look at. This article, to me, is much more broad. And if they were just quoting a couple of obscure studies, I'd say, well, they're just trying to manipulate an opinion. 
these are pretty broad studies and um, and legitimate studies. And the point is there are some people who one cup of, of coffee is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna to make them miserable. There are people who are, are allergic to caffeine. There are people who don't do well biochemically on caffeine. But for most people, I think the evidence shows, the proclivity of evidence shows that overall, coffee is a health benefit, not a defect. I hope that's true. In moderation. I've, I've been taking it in, in less right. than moderation for a long time. But the interesting thing about... What does about that mean, less than moderation? <laughs> it means excessively. What does that mean? I, I How many friend, cups of coffee uh, do you I had a friend who drank I, I 30 probably, cups a day. I probably 30. have six. Okay. That based on... Probably what too much. Yes. Well, but it's only what the, your body's going to let you know. Well, and I put a lot of milk in, and therefore, when I have the six, it's not six full cups of coffee. It's probably yes, but now four you're going to deal with the dairy, right? Now, now you're going <laughs> to <you're gonna> develop <laughs> a dairy I, allergy. I, you're going to die of dairy poisoning. I have a fair amount of Scandinavian <laughs> blood, and it turns out all my blood is Northern European. I mean, like no other people, but but all the Northern Europeans are fooling around in my blood. But anyway, <laughs> they, they I think have thousands of years of dairy behind them because they were Nordic, so right. they, they could. So I think my digestive system really yeah, loves, and that's loves dairy. The, 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 look, and any good doctor is going to agree that you try, see how you do, right? I mean, it's not a cookie cutter. But approach. I, I do want to say one more thing about the, the guy in California. You the know, judge. They, they, yes, they they point out that that it was a rodent study, and if you gave a lot of caffeine <laughs> to rats or something. Right. But the truth of the matter is, most of the medical studies are done on rodents, and we are a lot like rats and mice, which is why they use them in studies. But now, they always give them. They, give, they do give them too much, but as my son told me many years ago when, when it was proven that sweet and low was a carcinogen, and I said, yes, but, you know, a little bit, and he said, Mom, do you want to put any carcinogens, right. known carcinogens, into your system, you know, like... Uh, yeah, they, they take a lot more, so maybe it would take us a lot more years to have as much relative to our brain as the rat or the mouse. But but now you're on a whole other thing. There's no excuse for the, these rat testing anymore in terms of humane, uh, humaneness because they now have computer programs where you can take drops of blood from people, do computer analysis. The only reason they're testing on rats anymore, they used to because that was the best evidence they could get. That's not true anymore. It's because it's an industry and they're making a profit on selling the rats. Let's just be honest about it. You don't need to be testing on rats or mice anymore. You don't need it. We have, we have computer technology that can get us just as good, if not better, results okay. without testing on I'm gonna, animals. I'm going to check So enough, that. Or, enough already but with that But, you know, crap. he used to be nice to his lab rats because he was doing anxiety troubles, and you had to have them not have anxiety sometimes in order to compare them to the ones with mm. anxiety. To give them Valium. No, you, 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 <laughs> you, you actually, he would have his lab assistants pet them and talk to them and play yeah. with them oh, that's to nice. calm them that down. That is nice. <laughs> And then dissect them. No, I, uh, but I would see them knocked out. They were beautiful lab rats. You know, had long white hair. They were actually rather adorable. No excuse anymore. Okay. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to check that out. No excuse anymore. <laughs> um, it's a nice industry. It makes a nice profit. And, of course, what happens is you get used to it. So I'm sure your doctors are used to, if scientists are used to testing on rats, they don't want to change because then you have to learn a whole new technique. It's not necessary anymore. At any rate. <laughs> coffee uh, we have evidence it can lower your risk of Parkinson's lower your risk of Alzheimer's lower your risk of cancer certain cancers coffee may also protect your heart for decades patients with abnormal heart rhythms were advised to avoid caffeine however 
a new meta-analysis. By the way, nothing better than a meta-analysis. <laughs> no, certainly not. The meta means beyond, right? Yep. So, in other words, a, a meta-analysis is an analysis of all others of other studies. Right. This was published in April of 2018. Indicates that drinking coffee can actually decrease atrial fibrillation frequency by up to 13%. According to the BMJ, British Medical Journal Review, people who drink coffee are 19% less likely to die of cardiovascular disease, 30% likely to die of stroke than their coffee abstaining counterparts. Um, research shows people who drink coffee may be less likely to die from all causes. That is a ter- I agree with you, it's a terrible sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But that was the conclusion of a 2016 review in the European Journal of Epidemiology, which found that drinking four cups of coffee a day was associated with a lower risk of mortality, including deaths from heart disease and cancer. Now, of course, they're not saying you're not going to die. What they're <laughs> saying is a lower risk of dying from the diseases talked about in the article. Mm. We're all going to wear out. Really? We're going to erode. <laughs> I mean, we will, yeah. <laughs> anyway let's not tell the listeners that <laughs> take take no they're not listening Good. um so there you go from prevention magazine six proven health benefits of coffee enjoy your coffee this morning i do and it's funny because i used to feel bad geez if i had three cups, and now i'm realizing because i i tend to have two to three a day um uh, that's more than you know two's enough three sometimes if i just feel and is that like boost. an eight ounce cup with no milk in it i here's what i do and it's kind of silly <clears throat> um, I like, first of all, I much prefer cream to milk, but I use so little. First of all, I've been off sugar for now for about 10 years, most important thing I ever did. Refined sugar, I have no interest in. Um, there are substitutes uh, that are not carcinogenic. Um, I put about a quarter teaspoon of cream into my coffee, just enough so that it just cuts it a little bit, Mm. You know, it it cuts the acidity a little bit, and I get just a touch of that cream flavor. Mm. Um, <clears throat> milk, I don't particularly care for the taste of. Half and half is okay, but if I have it right, I will have just a quarter teaspoon of heavy cream just to give it a little cut. Yeah, and I put a lot of milk in mine, but... That's good then, because I, every time I drink a cup, I'm only getting four ounces of coffee. So um, if I have unless six you have a, a problem day, with that's dairy. But, but um, uh, Miss North, Northern European blood. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, Mostly Viking, I think. So watch out. <laughs> Viking? Well, I, I, I get the Irish. No, I yeah. actually am eighteen percent Scandinavian, but I think that they were <clears> going down there and you know messing with the Irish, and and the Irish were messing with someone else, and the Angles and the Saxons came over to England from you know the Germanic nations. So like, I think I come from a a warfaring <laughs> traveling. By the way, if you lusty. had to choose, if you had to choose, Anglo or Saxon? <laughs> Saxon. Uh, good. That's the right choice. Um, so, <clears throat> um. Do you put sugar in your coffee? No. Good for you. Okay. We'll take a break.
Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host. Two wonderful co-hosts today are Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate Victoria Sullivan and on-air weekend warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. Uh, during the 8 o'clock half hour, we'll have music from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini, and we'll be talking to Marty Klein, who was a guest here a year ago when he was putting together a documentary. It's now finished. Uh, Marty's a writer and activist and producer of Why Can't We Serve, a documentary about veterans with disabilities. We'll also have an existential wrap-up with Patrick Carlin because no show would be complete without yeah. that. Okay, so talked about the health benefits of, ca- of caffeine, right? How about the health benefits of psychedelics? <laughs> That's more complicated because it's also like the spiritual benefits, mm. it seems, from that um, Michael... Pollan. Pollan. Well, here's how I got interested. I mean, I noticed that Michael Pollan had written this book. Michael Pollan is... The, in my estimation and many others, the finest food journalist of, of our era. Um, he's written brilliant books about food, how to enjoying food, how we screw food up, uh, how we overeat, um, the, the, how we over-chemicalize our, our, our agriculture. Uh, Michael Pollan's done a great job for us. So I was rather surprised to see his new book, is about dropping. Uh, is, is about taking um, mushrooms. Wow! Now he had a reason for it. And LSD. And LSD. And he had a reason for it. And then um, I can't talk too much about this because it's not a done deal yet. But I was contacted uh, by a group who is looking to put together an evening um, on the subject, uh, in which case I would be involved, and. Um, it's not in our direct area, but not too far away. And um, uh, if it happens, we'll let you know more about it. But it got me interested in the subject. How are you involved? Well, if it happens, I will host. Ah, okay. But, um, You're not going to like drop acid for the event. I would. Or eat mushrooms. <laughs> I would. <laughs> I have never done. I either. never have either. I've never done psychedelics. And I, I wasn't interested when everyone else was. Yeah, wow. Too. I'm the queen here. Now I'm interested. <laughs> Mushrooms or psychedelics or both? Both, but I I did LSD twice, and the first time I did it was major. Major in terms of long-term effects of consciousness. How old were you at the time? I was in my 30s. 
which I think was good. I think that, that it's too powerful for young people. I uh, took something once that I didn't, I, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was something else. Uh-huh. And it was definitely a psychedelic thing, but it was a very bad situation because I was expecting something else, and I got, I got trees turning orange yes, and, and, yes. and, and burning. And, the trees talk to you. And, like, and when stairs, you're... stairs going upside down as yes. I'm going up them. And it was a horrible well, the early thing. part is very strong, and it's almost like ayahuasca. I mean, the first half hour or hour <coughs> after I did the tab of acid, I was outside, luckily. My boyfriend and I had gone to this place in the country to do it in a nice setting. But you feel kind of ill. Your stomach is upset, yes. et cetera. And it, everything seemed too intense. It was like the ground was reaching up to grab my feet. Yes. The trees were like sucking at All me. Right, so now I know but, what I did. But it, but, it, <laughs> but it calmed down. And as it calmed down, it became like a fascinating experience. Like, wow, you know, look at those rocks. And suddenly you saw that a rock that normally looked like a gray stone to you on the ground had 27 colors in it. Mm. You know, like they, maybe they were shades of gray and blue and mica or whatever. But And when I, every time I would go into this lodge where we were at, you know, thinking, okay, I could handle the inside doors now, they had these oriental rugs on the floor. Uh-oh. And yes, they mm. looked like they were going to like eat my feet. Right. Everything was vibrating. Everything was vibrating. So I would go back outside and get excited by the rocks. But as the hours went by, and this trip must have lasted about six to eight hours, it calmed down to the point where I looked in the mirror at my face. <laughs> this is, you know, Narcissist City on that one. And But I was looking at it to say, can I live in this face? You know, mm. like I was, whatever, 30, 31 years old. Can I live in this face for the next 20 or 30 years? And I sort of had this discussion with my face in the mirror, and I was okay with it. But I was thinking later, if you were 17, 18, 19, it was like it, it threw you into not only all these visual and other and, and people's faces looked very bizarre. I couldn't look at people without, like, sort of falling over laughing. Everybody looked like <laughs> Donald Duck to me, you know? <laughs> But I found myself just thinking about things and peeling away, like peeling away the ego. Hmm. Uh, it, and what I also realized from these experiences of, like, being afraid to step on the rug, that I think the hallucinations that people have are like that. And when my father had dementia, and sometimes he'd walk in a room and he'd get to the edge and it was like he didn't want to step in. And I thought, what's going on in his brain went on in my brain on acid. But normally, if you have hallucinations because you have a high fever or something, you don't really tend to remember them later. It's sort of blurred. You remember them somewhat. But these were just very clear memories for me. And I almost felt like I could see in people's eyes when something like that was happening. It made me much more conscious of almost like the chemical content of your brain hmm. and what distortion could be for someone and how terrifying it could be. Well, well, the reason Michael Pollan got into it was not for those reasons, although those are really good reasons to, to try it. Uh, he was interested in research that seemed to show that under the right circumstances medical super and under medical supervision psychedelics teach us a lot about consciousness dying addiction depression and transcendence mm-hmm. <clears throat> so 
he's coming at it much more from there is a spiritual quality to what he's looking at. Right. But he's also looking at it from a more empirical sense of how can this be used? Mm-hmm. Um, and can this be used to help people, particularly with um, fatal cancer? Can it help them ease their anxiety right. and their fear and and go through the final process of death in a much more, I don't like the word positive, but in a, in a less fearful and Absolutely. more transcendent yeah. way? But I think that... <clears throat> I think that feeling the power of nature is a kind of transcendence. In other words, I only did two trips, and the second one wasn't anything that special. But the longer I live up here and the more I'm in touch with nature, the more I get that thing that LSD could do for you. And he says, um, Pollard says at some point, you know, like, drugs are faster. You can get it by meditation. And I've had that, too, or fasting. Well, my experience with it was twofold. One, <clears throat> uh, through dream work, mm-hmm. uh, particularly a couple of lucid dreams, are very hallucinatory <clears throat> and have that ca- kind of same feel. <clears throat> and like with trips, you said you took two trips. One was transcendent and memorable. The other was so-so. Same with dreams. Most of our dreams are somewhat prosaic. They're maybe unusual in a little way or interesting in a little way like a TV show might be. And then all of a sudden you get a dream where you, go, you know it's something much deeper is going mm-hmm. on. And if you <coughs> have techniques, which, I, which you know, I've l- been taught, you have a better chance of discovering what it is that dream is coming to mm-hmm. teach. Because I believe they are teachers. And I believe, th- now what are these psychedelics? They come from nature. These are teachers. So nature is our teacher. And a psychedelic is simply just a manufacturer. Uh, uh, humans coming in and adapting what comes from nature. Okay? Um, so I agree with you that these experiences may not require psychedelics, but they, they have a certain power, particularly for people um, with fatal diseases, mm-hmm. it turns out, <clears throat> who don't have experience <coughs> meditating, et cetera. Right. Um, so Pollen has long been concerned uh, with uh, the moral dilemmas of everyday life. This is a review from the New York Times. Second Nature, his first book, was about gardening, but really about ways to overcome our alienation from the natural world. A Place of My Own, his second, chronicled the um, construction of his own writing studio. The Botany of Desire, his third and possibly greatest book, put him in the garden, though in a more global state of mind, and then went on to write books about food. Um, he, he, he famously came up with the phrase, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Good luck selling that in our country (laughs) he's american god bless him um but he doesn't write self-help books um he's a serious writer in the best sense of Mm -hmm. the word serious meaning he's not looking to entertain us but he's also not looking to impress us with a lot of techno speak and um and 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 intellectual (coughs) verbiage okay he's a really powerful strong writer um his new book is called how to change your mind and he remains concerned with what we put in our bodies, but not about arugula, as the uh, <laughs> journalist says. <clears throat> At various points, he says that ingesting LSD, psilocybin, and the crystallized venom of a Sonoran desert toad um, can produce remarkable results. Um, <clears throat> before starting the book, Pollen, now in his early 60s, had never tried psychedelics before. Um, referring himself to less a lesser child of the psychedelic 60s than that 
of the moral panic that psychedelics provoked. Um, of course, as he did a lot of research, and we now know that what were called ethnogens, which are kind of psych psychedelic plants, um, were used by the ancient Greeks um, and throughout history. Um, nothing in his book argues for the recreational use or abuse of psychedelic drugs. What it does argue is that psychedelic-aided therapies conducted by trained professionals can be transformative and help with everything from overcoming addiction to easing the existential terror of the terminally ill. Um, now, we see the same thing with marijuana, which is my drug of choice. And I've had some deep spiritual uh, trips and experiences with marijuana. Um, we now know that we had a medical marijuana nurse on here a couple of years ago. She said, people, have, you have no idea how good a drug this is for people for, for all sorts of elements. Mm -hmm. um, now, with marijuana, it's not the high. They take the THC out of it. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's done for medicinal purposes only, not to get high. But um, Pollen's book is about mm -hmm. taking trips, but doing them for the specific reason of either dealing with a terminal illness, dealing with anxiety, dealing with addiction, or getting in touch with the more the more transcendent part of our own nature, which is what happened to you on your first trip. Yeah, I think that that whole idea of how to change your mind, if you have done it, and if you've done it some other way, you fasted for ten days and you know saw the <coughs> light. I think you'd want to do it again. I mean, I wish it was more widely available to do a a, a LSD experience with a practitioner, because. Anything that expands your consciousness seems to me like a good idea. Again, <laughs> now we're back to basic philosophy and politics. Almost every culture, the people that run the culture, the governments, they want obedient people. They don't <laughs> want a lot of chaos and creativity. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, but, but particularly American <clears throat> culture is not about and look at, just look at our educational system. Our educational system, K through six, junior high and high school, is not about creativity and imagination and find out what your soul's needs are and interests are. It's about following the rules. And psychedelics and marijuana are about the opposite. They're about finding something deep and individual that goes beyond any, any order or conforming philosophy and so it's not a big mystery that cultures don't encourage this right you have to find a mystery school or mm -hmm. a very hip doctor uh, or a good journalist like michael pollan to encourage it but look <laughs> the uh the cat is out of the bag the the barn door is open whatever bad metaphor you want to use <laughs> because marijuana is going to be legalized in all 50 states possibly in our lifetime it's inevitable we know it mm-hmm it's just the culture's going to fight it until they can make money at it. <laughs> Some aspects of the culture, Until they can make right. money at it, and then they'll, and then they'll yeah. promote it. The rigid controlling aspects of the culture. Uh, according to this reviewer, where Pollen truly shines is his exploration of the mysticism and spirituality of psychedelic experiences. Many LSD or psilocybin trips, even good trips, begin with an ordeal that can feel similar to dissolving or even dying. What appears to be happening in a neurological sense is that the part of the brain that governs the ego, 
which is all about coherence, about desperately maintaining, the Buddhist would say the illusion, I would agree, uh, the illusion that we are this individual ego. Um, it's a, uh, he, he refers to it as a, the default mode network. <laughs> when that drops away, that's going to be frightening. Mm. It's not what we're used to. We might be what we want, but we're not used to it. Say what you want about the ego and every pejorative thing you can come up with, most of which are accurate. It gives us a sense of comfort. Mm -hmm. It gives us a sense of control. <clears throat> I would agree with the spiritual folks who say that control is illusory, that we're never really in control. That's why I think young people shouldn't do this stuff. They have enough trouble with reality anyway. <laughs> I really felt like when I took that acid trip at 30 or whatever, that I was at the right age to do it. You know, I'd lived enough. Uh, and I think that a whole mirror thing was a kind of peeling away the ego. It's, it was sort of like looking at myself and what's behind my bone structure, you know, what's behind my skin? What is the soul in there that's, you know, expressing itself? Um, and I don't think you're ready for those questions too young. You're, you know, you're like, how much can I drink? You know, how much nookie can I get? I mean, you know, <laughs> you're on a different trip when you're... I knew, unfortunately, I had a nephew who nookie? did about... Yes, he did about... You objected to tummy? <laughs> you objected to tummy and you promote nookie? I think it's a great radio word. I just use it here, Doug. Okay. So anyway, I had this nephew who was in a prep school. I don't see you in nookie. I don't back, see that. Back in the day. And he went on about 40 or 50 acid trips while he was in prep school. And he committed suicide at 27. I mean, 10 hey. years later. You know, it, it wasn't good. You know, when the kids went on the many, many, many acid trips, it wasn't good. It was too strong. It was too much damage. I uh, would tend to agree with you, but I know as soon as you say that, the, f the first thing a 16-year-old, when they hear that, say, oh, yeah, watch this. <laughs> but um, Don't listen. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think what we might agree on is that if we were a little more mature as a culture, um, creatively mature, we would... Um, talk about these things instead of keeping them under the rug. Oh, absolutely. Talk about the bad trips and how serious that mm -hmm. could be. Talk about why it may not be true for every young teenager. Some might have a life-enhancing experience on drugs. The, the odds are you might have a really bad trip and it's serious. And get... Um, <clears throat> there's this one doctor who's actively researching. He got a government grant to study the effects of psilocybin mushrooms on uh, uh, fatally ill cancer patients. Mm. And his results are amazingly positive. Yeah, and fatally ill cancer patients, are you really going to worry that they're going right. to get addicted or I something think, to think, any of these things? I think that the negative results of a lot of drugs are that the people who are taking them are trying to escape from something, mm. not learn something. Mm -hmm. Good point. Because... If you're looking to escape from your ego, you, when you do, you're going to be horrified. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. that, um, And that's why there's seminal books. I mean, The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. His was on mescaline. Um, it's, it's very, yes, that's the educational part. This is very tricky stuff. Yeah. Um, this is not all about new age, wonderful flowers and uh, clouds and everybody's happy. This is about a serious look into the soul, which is both life-enhancing, beautiful, and horrifyingly terrifying. Well, also, in, in most the cultures, the native cultures that we've studied, it's the shamanic 
uh, person in the tribe who does the drug in order to have the insights for the others. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like everybody was getting high. And, and the shamanic person wasn't doing it every night. I mean, they'd have ceremonies maybe twice a year. They would, mm -hmm. you know, really go crazy with peyote. But they, they knew that it was both dangerous and enlightening. Mm -hmm. And that's the dualism. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you don't necessarily need drugs to enter this strange egoless realm of consciousness. Near-death experiences, meditation, and fasting can get you there too. So can dream work, by the way. So can self-hypnosis. But psychedelics get you there quickly. <laughs> exactly. While greatly intensifying the feelings of oneness with whatever it is the quieting of our default mode network puts us in contact with. Some may call it God, others the cosmos, but even atheists come out of psychedelic therapy changed by the experience. Uh, you go deep enough or far enough in consciousness, one researcher tells Pollen, and you will bump into the sacred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, all of which suggests that the Buddhist ideal of ego suppression is grounded in neurochemical reality. For the brains of experienced meditators and people undergoing a psychedelic trip display striking commonality. The more connected we feel to what's around us and the less we obsess about ourselves, the happier we are likely to be. I have, um, again, I don't like most uh, catchphrases, um, but I read, one, I read this thing in a book, and boy, I wrote it out, and I taped it on my wall in my bedroom. Hmm. Four words. No self, no problem. <laughs> wow. Mm. <laughs> totally. That's it. I'm out of here. Right. <laughs> check, please. <laughs> what do you give the check to if you're if you're egoless, though? Right. You ever think about that? <laughs> it, it's nice to let go of the ego, uh, you know, to have those experiences where you are one with everything. They're it, rare. Excuse me, sir. Here's your check. Uh, hold on. <laughs> who are you talking to? Who, what do you mean, sir? They're not rare. You don't think they're no, rare? not at all. Wow, not at all. You get you get any of this playing uh, playing your saxophone? Always. The, that's the realm I go to in mm. order for me to express myself. I guess I mean the one where you really where the message okay, that's coming you, at you I'll, is, oh wow, it's bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger. Uh, oh, I'm I'm part okay. of this big, 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 big thing. There's no division. Well, I can give you a quick <laughs> one of that. I was working in the woods one day, and all of a sudden something told me just to look. So I looked in the woods, and all of a sudden, like. Uh, whatever the trees were, whatever I was seeing was gone. It was sort of like there was no name and form anymore. So I could actually see the energy of where they were coming from. So then when I, when I sort of came to again, which was only a split second, I'm sure, and I turned over a rock that was like an ant carrying a leg, you know? <laughs> an ant carrying so, a leg. Yeah, you know, and so I looked and I said, you know what, there's no such thing as death. It's just one form changing to another. And that was mm. really freeing for mm. me, mm. you know? These things are freeing. I mean, if you have those moments, they're very freeing. And and you can really get by for quite a few years on a, a few of those moments. Mm. <laughs> well, Hopefully no, a like, lifetime. That would be much better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, I don't know about a lifetime yet. Mine hasn't mine hasn't finished. I'll talk, well, I'll talk to you on the deathbed. I'll call you up. Keep Gus. working. I'll hey, tell you Gus, what. it's me. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do a show. We'll get live remote. We'll do a, we'll do a show from your deathbed. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> But you better say nice things to me. I don't want to go out with any kind of critique. <laughs> and we'll have it sponsored by the National Dairy Association. Right. <laughs> and as I get old, I get shorter, so be a little midget next time. <laughs> I love it. If you're a little midget, I'm going to invite you. <laughs> you know, Alice in Wonderland is so weird. I've been reading it to this oh, little yeah. six-year-old girl. <laughs> and Alice gets big, and she gets small, and she eats a mushroom. And <laughs> this little girl is, like, looking at me, you know, like, 
well, what, what, what's happening? <laughs> But but I think it's a good experience for her. She comes to my porch and she has these weird experiences with me. Yesterday she tried to hypnotize me. Oh, okay. <laughs> By the way, in the dream world, in, in the dream world, a porch or a deck uh-huh. or a garage is is um, represents the need to connect the inside to the outside. Think and about it totally that. does. does it right? totally does. It's the most amazing thing. You're out there. You don't even think about it, but you're like so connected. And you're out in nature, yet you're not. You're protected. So right. it's that it's that it's that integration of the of the inner and the outer. That in the dream world, it's always interesting when they show up. Basements in the in the uncon- is the unconscious mm. represents it, well. Everything represents the unconscious because the dreams in the unconscious. But basements specifically point to what's going on in the unconscious. And are mm. attics transcendence? Attics is about the high, the the yes. An attic can represent the higher mind mm. often. Um, <clears throat> so, um, and, but basically, bit as important as the higher mind. That's how the, that's the integration. Mm. That's what you know. That's the thing. And as a real estate broker, one of my <laughs> hats. I love basements now. I used to everybody be afraid. I was going to. I can't wait to get in the basement, <laughs> be, especially with older houses, because that's where you learn. Mm. Um, first of all, it's it's practically how you learn how a house has been taken care of. Is what, how the basement looks, right? Mm. Um, but their basements are fascinating. Yeah. What? That's where people hide stuff. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's where we. That's where we. That's the stuff we don't want to look at. Right. Well, that's where we made the wine in my neighborhood. You know. <laughs> now that's more intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> I like. Yeah. I like basements too. I, I, yeah, right. Basements cool are places. very, very. You very guys cool. are lower chakra guys. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> no, we just like. It's about both of them. If all you do is hang out in the attic, you're you're not going to be very connected. No, well, I mean, we have all those chakras because we have to be connected up and down the body. Mm. By the way, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> he doesn't go for that by one. By the way, <laughs> no. I have one thing to say before our break. Please yes. don't squeeze the shaman. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> Chasing rabbits And you know you 